Welcome, everybody. This is an episode of the Founder Series here at IMD. It's organized by the Alumni Center for Entrepreneurship here at IMD. And we try in this series to engage entrepreneurs who are related to the school. Some are, some aren't. Our guest today is actually an EMBA from a few years ago, which is great. It's nice to have alum back to the school for things like this, especially alum who've been out trying to break new ground and create new organizations. And that's what this, this is all about. The Founder Series is an attempt to help would-be founders who are interested in trying to understand what it's really like as opposed to what you read in the popular press, and also would-be investors who are trying to understand how they judge the people in front of them. We're often told that when you look at an investment, it's really the business person in front of you that you need to understand much more than the business plan that's sitting on the table. And this session, these sessions are a little bit about trying to understand better what real-life entrepreneurs are like other than the cartoon characters we sometimes see. So I'm Ian Stewart, an alum of the school from a long, long time ago, longer than I care to remember. And I've done a bunch of things which you could look up if you haven't already looked up already. And our guest today is Eike Pestini, who is Austrian, but started a company in Zurich. I'd like to know the reason for that at some point. And is here to talk about some of the challenges that happen when things don't quite go according to plan. Eike, welcome back to IMD. Thanks for having me, Ian. <laughs> Let's dive straight in. What I'd like to get a start on is, how you got to LucaBox, right? We'll talk about LucaBox, the company, in a minute, but take us on a path through from Austria through to the various things that you did, and it's a fun list, to get to LucaBox. Yeah, so I actually grew up in Austria and in South Africa, so I was used to being on the move from a very early age. And when I was 22, I actually moved to the United States, basically exploring my own identity, I guess. I lived in San Francisco. I worked as a holistic massage therapist, during the day and was the manager of an oxygen and sushi bar during the night. Very San Francisco. It was an amazing time. And we moved to Cape Town after that, where I actually started being in IT project management for the first time. That's when I first got in, in touch with project management and technology development. After moving back to Vienna, I went into Agile, Scrum, product ownership, all of that. It's yeah, as an Agile evangelist, you could actually say. And that's when I was headhunted by a UK company to join a company in Zurich. Ah, that's how you got to Zurich. Okay. That's how I got to Zurich. And having lived in Vienna all in all for 17 years and having grown up in the Alps in Freiberg, I, I really, really miss the mountains. So that and the job offer, it was a very easy decision. So that's, for me, that was the first time in a corporate. And, and, and I wanted to ask about that because you said, I, I know that your family are actually entrepreneurs. Why did yes. you end up in the corporate life? Why did you not think about automatically, oh, I must be an entrepreneur as well? I really don't know. I, I somehow just dabbled into it and then I played the game, I guess. I just And I played it really well. So I actually made quite a career for myself in the corporate world. I found it very easy to a certain degree. And it was at home, it was always very difficult because nobody understood what I was actually doing and nobody nobody understood why I would actually sell my soul. You know, I know this is so drastic, but you, you know where I'm coming from. And I never really thought about it. And I had many fights with my sister even because she would rather starve, you know, than having a boss. Seriously, like that serious. And I'm like, why don't you just go wait table? She said, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to have a boss. So very, very strong, very strong minded family about entrepreneurship. And it was during the corporate that I realized I'm lacking a lot of business foundation, fundamentals, strategy, et cetera. And that's actually what brought me to IMD. It's interesting because a lot of people would do it the other way around. They'd start things on their own. If it didn't work, they'd use a business degree to make them appropriately equipped 
to survive in a large corporation and you did the reverse. What exactly were you hoping to get from the MBA? Interestingly enough, I was, I think, one of the very few people that went into the EMBA not wanting to become C-level. But I didn't know what I wanted out of it. It's just, I knew that that wasn't it. And it's, it was during an excursion to the Silicon Valley where I actually realized, okay, this might be for me, this entrepreneurship topic. You know, when you know me, you know I'm not a corporate person. I'm very free-spirited and I speak my own mind. And I, I do raise issues without holding back. I'm not very conformative, let's put it that way. And I, but I never knew. I always thought I was normal. So in, in the States and with Krano from, from IMD actually, it was when I really got bitten by the bug, by the bug of opportunity, by the bug of courage, not looking back. You're very much thinking in opportunities and in, in, in possibilities. Is that and why you went to Stanford afterwards? You did a course at Stanford straight after the MBA or soon after? Design thinking, yes. Yeah. We actually did a course during the MBA as well, where I got really, really hooked on the topic. And I still, to this day, I love it. It's for me, it's a very natural concept. You know, it's just so obvious, actually. I don't understand why this wasn't a concept from the get-go. So all of that, I came, we came back to Europe and I knew I wanted to start a company. How did you end up with the idea? Because wanting to start a company is one thing. I meet a lot of students, young, at different ages, who are keen to be entrepreneurs these days. But I think all they really want is to be independent, run their own thing and be rich. I'm not sure they understand what it's actually like. Nothing um, wrong with that, though. <laughs> no, I, I'm perfectly happy with those as goals, but you, it's helpful to understand how you get from here to there. What was the first step? I often say to people, you need three things. You need a halfway decent idea, halfway decent. You need a team of people around you because it's so hard to do it entirely on your own. And then you need to be able to have access to funding. If you have mm -hmm. those three things, that may be a good starting point. What was your starting point? So the original idea was actually my co-founder's idea. She has a background in logistics. I didn't. I really didn't. And, and now I'm an expert in supply chain, but I really <laughs> wasn't. She had the idea and it wasn't even half decent. It was really nice, but the unit economics were really bad. So that, that part wasn't the best, but we had a good team. I had access to amazing tech talent from my previous position right. where I was leading an IT department. And uh, together with them, we basically, we really just started. I know it sounds, but we just started doing stuff basically. And we started talking to everybody about it, reading about it, and just learning as, as much as we could as we went along. And we went into the startup scene right away. And we went to all kinds of competition much too early. There was so much rejection. It, it was really, really tough in the beginning. We're like, okay, so maybe I remember one of our devs saying, I don't understand why people don't want this. It's amazing. You know, so like, yeah, but it's not that easy. You know, it takes, it takes a little more. So it was actually the, the first idea was really, really bad. We turned it around 180 degrees and then we realized, okay, now it's slowly, it's slowly picking up. So the changing of the idea presumably came from talking to customers who said, no, not this way, that way. No, it really came from all the rejections at the competitions first. Mm. And then we did a pilot, which ran really well. Everybody wanted the service. And we then did the unit economics after, you know, having done all the math. And we knew of a company in the United States that was flying with this model and got so much funding. We're like, okay, there must be something about it. But when we did the unit economic calculation, we knew that was never going to work. It was just never going to work. And that company in the U.S. is also now at close down because the unit economics didn't work. That's an American phenomenon for me, you know, getting funding without a solid 
Right. It's much easier to raise money there. Yeah. I've worked in both China and the US and it's much easier to raise money in environments where there's trillions of dollars floating around than it is where people hand out a million each very carefully. Do you want to describe just exactly what Lucabox did or at least what the idea was at the beginning and then how it transformed? Yeah, at the very, very beginning, we were thinking of servicing the first mile of the supply chain for those that are not supply chain experts. We wanted to build an app that when you sell something on Tutti or Ricardo or eBay or whatever, and you make a lot of money, you basically just take a picture of that item. We come and pick it up, we package it and we ship it for you. Because today, when you ship, when you sell something, you're like, yeah, that's, that's a lot of money, but then you need to find an appointment or you need to package it and I mean, package, you know, fees or whatever. So that was the original idea where the unit economics didn't work. We then really shifted to B2B and we focused on the last mile. And since I'm a super impatient person, we had this idea to ship within an hour in all kinds of urban areas. Basically what today, you know, is done by gorillas or flinks, you know, who do it basically who push it to an extreme. But that was the idea, really have customized delivery windows. You basically get delivered what you want when you want it. That was the idea. And that, that actually brought us some traction in the beginning until Mike and I were in Mallorca at the time. And one of our sales reps actually talked to somebody from an e-scooter provider company. And that's when things were about to change. From people who are wondering, yeah. one of the taglines we've been using for this particular talk was not all pivots work. And there are two aspects to this particular pivot. One was that the pivot itself had issues. But the second was... Yeah how and why you ended up pivoting. Tell us about that. The first pivot that we did that I just described was a very healthy pivot, right? We realized the unit economics weren't working out and we went to work with very established companies with a model that was pretty sane and pretty safe and tested. And when the e-scooter market started to open up, I think all of us remember it was a craze. You know, it was just, it was madness everywhere. All cities were full of scooters. And why we thought it would work is basically our sales reps. And I agree to this day, he just, he approached them. He said, guys, you need logistics. We have logistics providers that we can use to help you, you know, with collecting scooters, charging them and putting them into the street because they all have warehouses, etc." So originally we thought there's an amazing synergy between having our partners deliver parcels during the day and collecting, you know, using the same vehicles and the same, the same equipment and amenities to basically do scooter management. And also at that time, we were basically setting the price for the work we were doing. So we were basically in a, in a position of power because the, all the scooter providers didn't know how to go about the logistics, you know, didn't have the tech, etc. It was also new. So in the beginning, we were making a lot of money, and I really mean a lot of money. The growth we had there was crazy. Within three or four months, we were servicing three or four scooter provider companies in three countries, and then going up to more than 3,000 scooters moved a day. And we didn't think of it as a pivot. We thought of it as a cash cow that could basically keep us independent from investors. The idea, I still think, is very nice. I would have liked to stay a little more independent going forward, but it just really didn't work out. It was not for us to manage such a huge operation. We had so many drivers, so many vans, so many warehouses to rent. You know, all of a sudden we went from being a tech provider or in a matchmaking platform to a full-blown 3PL, third-party logistics provider. And we were not cut out for it, A, and B, the market got very bad very quickly 
because everybody wanted to play in that market. It was the fastest growing market of all times. Yeah, so you had two challenges then. One was you went from digital platform where you had very little risk because yeah. the cash and the buyers and sellers were either side of you to actually yeah. running an operation or you were running operations for clients, which meant you had physical exposure. The other thing yeah. you had at that point was a very heavy dependency because of the revenue stream and the investment you made yeah. in process to one yeah. sector. And that sector went up and went down on yes. the top. The downfall was way faster than our rise. We were raising our seed round in the course of the awakening of the e-scooter market. And we had a very attractive value proposition and a very attractive position in that market already for investors. And of course, also we could show a lot of traction. So it was a very, we were a very impressive investment case at that moment. And that's also why it wasn't hard to raise money. So we raised quite a bit of money, which was burned super fast. How much just so, to give it an order of magnitude? I think it was 1.4 million. And we burnt it in six months or something. Spent on what? What was it invested in? Warehouses, drivers, vans, all right. the operations. So operating costs, operation. not yes. so much, not so much capex, but just operating yeah. costs. We were building an app as well, but we were, were too slow. And things were just too crazy. Or what was really crazy about that time was, e-scooters do not sleep, right? So our operations did not sleep. So we were basically working around the clock. Monday to Sunday and had most of the issues were during the night. So all of us very quickly, very tired, very, very tired. And the speed at which the e-scooter providers grew and we had to grow alongside with them was just insane. How did it start to unravel? Actually, by, by the time that more and more competitors came onto the market and offered the service or probably better because more experienced service for much less money. We were losing turf. I mean, it was a war for territory for the e-scooter providers as well as it was for us. I mean, the, the, those that, you know, conquer Berlin were the heroes, you know, and then next would be Hamburg and then Munich, you know. So if you lose one of those cities, it's going to hurt you really bad. And we were losing turf and turf and turf and not over months, over days. So at, at some point we had to really be very honest with ourselves and look at how much money we were bleeding every day and had to pull the plug. But you pulled the plug on that sector rather than the company first? What was the order of things? Was it so dominant that it actually created the downfall for the whole company at that point? Or was it yeah, a decision to, to move back and try and get out of e-scooters and try and go back to other sectors so you weren't so dependent upon one space? The, the plan was to really create a holding and a separate entity for the scooter business. It, it had its own branding and everything to not hurt LucaBox because LucaBox was still existing. It didn't get a lot of love and it didn't <coughs> grow necessarily, but we were still having a few B2B customers that were very happy with the service, but we never got to that point. Things were happening so fast that we could never split the two entities. So LucaBox was hurt really, really badly. By the time we pulled the plug, we also had to let go, you know, of, I don't know, 30 people or something, also overnight, basically. We had a few people left, basically the original core team, and we're out of money as well. When was this? What year are we talking that about? That was, that's June 2019. Again, to recap, moving into a space that seemed attractive, spilled out of just doing e-platform into physical logistics at the same time. Dependency, therefore, on a single marketplace yeah. in something which was heavily hyped and therefore very quickly heavily competitive. Mm -hmm. Competitors came in both for the e-scooter clients that you had, but also mm -hmm. then logistics providers for those clients. That created 
cash crunch, falling revenues, same costs, and you ended up in a cash flow crunch that eventually meant you had to let everybody go. Yeah. Plus, we lost all trust of investors. Yeah. It was a very hard awakening. Some investors had just invested into the seed round probably a month before we pulled the plug. And I got calls like, I can you know this was going to happen. Did you lie to us? Were you dishonest? You know, did you hide something in the due diligence? It was very So we were basically out of money. We had hardly any people. We had a few customers left. And it was basically a down round, a very, very serious down round. So we found a few investors, angels primarily, that said, you know what, I believe in you. And there are still a few customers that are very happy with the product. So I'll help you. And we did raise a small round. And I don't know even where to start with how much we learned, but we were so rattled at that point. And it was all about survival after it was about surviving the e-scooter madness. You know, so it's still survival mode, but we didn't want to let go. Let's just put it that. It wasn't time for me to give up. And we raised a small round. We focused on the original, like the second idea of, you know, the B2B last mile provider, matchmaking platform as well, and started to really gain traction. But the company, the image, every team member was heavily bruised. We weren't the same anymore. We weren't as blue-eyed and as naive as we were before. It was a serious wake-up call. We were super, super careful with money, all of a sudden very cost-conscious, which I have to admit, we weren't that much before. So for us, as, as the core team, it was a super, super intense maturity journey, I would say. And actually, we grew up, let's put it that way, we grew up. It was almost like we went through puberty, just that we lost millions, you know, in the process. So a very, very expensive learning money. But it was then a few months later when COVID hit. And COVID was a huge blessing for us because all of a sudden everybody wanted home deliveries and they wanted them, you know, fast and convenient because they don't want to leave the house. And that's when when actually that, that model of Lucabox really, really started taking off. And we extended the team. We had a very strong chief product owner who had a very strong vision for the product. Amazing clients like IKEA, you know, Migro, big, big names. And it was, it was just fun. It was really, at that point, it was amazing. And I loved it. Not my co-founder, not so much. My co-founder never recovered from the e-scooter madness. And I think that for me was very interesting to observe because she didn't have the energy to start again. She's like, okay, because then, of course, now that we were gaining traction, the pressure was on. And this time for real, because, okay, this is your turnaround chance and you probably have one, right? Then now all of a sudden we have the pressure to not die, but to really blossom, you know, and to thrive now. So she went, she went into a burnout and left the company, which made it very hard for me being the solo founder, not just in terms of image, but emotionally doing this alone is just, and I mean, who's going to replace a co-founder? It's very, it's very difficult. It is tough. Yeah. She was the co-founder with the background in logistics to begin with. So her idea. And by then you've learned a great deal. So you have the capacity theoretically to do all the things you're doing. But what you're describing is in sense, a loss of personal momentum amongst the team, which just makes it hard to keep going. So what happened? Yeah. So what happened at that point, we basically that bridge money that we raised was running out again and we had to raise. And this time we knew it would be a series A round. So we were looking at four, 
to 5 million. We had the traction, we had the customers, we had the team, but we had a very complex, let's call it broken even, cap table. The down round hurt my co-founder and myself very much. And we never put enough, I think, focus and energy on really cleaning it up and maybe providing the company a chance to survive by actually providing enough equity for the co-founders to be credibly incentivized. I might jump in there and say, to explain to people who aren't aware, so the cap yeah. table is your list of investors, how much they own of the company, how much they've put in. When a new investor comes in, it's one of the first things we look at to make sure that we understand that there are incentives aligned, first of all, that everybody's aligned in their incentives. So we don't like to see, if, if you're an early stage investor, you don't like to see different categories of share or debt which misaligns people's incentives for supporting the company as it goes forward. The other thing which you're referring to is that it's terribly important that the investors see enough motivating incentive for the founders. Because yeah. if there isn't A, skin in the game so that they're committed to it, and B, a possible return, there's a chance that when things get tough, people just leave. So that's what you're referring to when you talk about getting cleaning up the cap table and making sure it's in a state that new money can come in with confidence, knowing exactly. that the people who are there will stay and will help build the company. Exactly. That was one of the biggest issues. The feedback we got from investors was, okay, so A, your co-founder left. B, you hardly have any equity left. Why would I believe that you're still in this company in one year from today? It's only now that I actually, or at that time, that I realized how big of, a, of an issue a down round can become later on. And maybe should we also explain what a down round is? Because sure. So a down round is when you take an investment in from new investors at a free money price that is lower than your previous round. So in other words, what everybody wants to see is rising prices with each successive investment round, which is why you go angel series A, series B, and so on. If you have to take a down round, it makes it very clear that there was a problem, a serious problem in the company. And that tells new investors who see that in, in the history of the cap table, that there were problems that may or may not have been resolved by that point. It's a negative signal for investors. It's obviously negative for anybody who suffered dilution, in this case, the two founders, but it also signals that there might be deeper problems. It, it means yeah. that it did not go to plan. <laughs> yeah, I mean, show me the startup that goes to plan. But anyway, <laughs> anyway, so at, at, that, at that time, we, I think we were raising for a very, very long time. We found a potential lead investor, a very prestigious uh, VC fund in Switzerland, uh, which was a very good signal, again, you know, to the market, to the investors. But then it just, it took too long. I couldn't find appropriate co-investors. And yeah, it was, it was dragging on too long, even though at that point we made as much revenue as we did with the e-scooters. So wow. revenue grew really, really fast. The whole commercial side of the business, the tech, the product, the team was a joy. We were really taking off and we all knew it. We had the momentum, but I just couldn't close the investment round. Yeah. Now we're talking September, October. November 21. So yeah, it's actually since COVID started to that point, we grew at least 15 to 20% a month. It was really nice wow. growth. Yeah, it was very solid. It was, you know, established partnerships with established companies, not like the Wild West with the e-scooter providers. It was amazing. I loved it. It was really, really good. And in, I think it was November when he called and he said, I can't, please, I love what you're doing and I'm a big fan of you, but I'm losing credibility by sticking to this, by basically sticking my neck out here and you're not able to win co-investors. So I'm pulling back my offer. And 
at that point, I mean, that was that was a really serious blow. We were out of money. At that point, again, I mean, every time we ran out of money, I fired people. And very openly, always, I said, listen, I might raise the money. I would love to hire you back. But for now, I just need to fire you or, need, you know, terminate the contract. So we were already scaling down again, which hurt operations. But we did have a plan B, which we had actually from the very, very start. It was a company that had very big synergies with us and needed a platform like Lookabox for their own operation. It's We always knew Lookabox could be white label used and we were looking for exit potential everywhere. So basically, this was a big company that shipped furniture and parts of building material from A to B and they wanted to do it super, super precise, you know, just in time delivery. So they then jumped in, in the beginning with a very generous offer until, of course, we went on with the due diligence and they looked at the at the books and the state of the company at that time. And they knew if they just waited a little bit longer, the price would drop significantly, which of course it did. So two months later, basically, we knew we were out of money. And then they said, okay, we're going to buy you. Uh, we had a big general assembly and there was some upside down the line in a, in the deal if I stayed on with them and also the, the chief product owner to actually integrate our software into their organization and, you know, make sure it runs. And then after one or two years, there would be some upside to the investors, which of course is a deal that I would have signed. You know, I probably wouldn't have seen anything as the founder. So I would, I would have signed. Every investor agreed to the sale. And it, I think it was a week later, another Corona wave hit. And it was a week later, they called, they called us and they said, listen, we're running into liquidity issues ourselves due to Corona. We need to pull out. So by then, I can't tell you how tired I was and how, you know, just drained I was at that point. I just knew that's it. That's the fatal bullet. And we had a few board meetings and we agreed that it's time to really close this before we create any damage on the operation side, on the customer side. So we downsized or we closed all operations, let everybody go to a complete full stop. And then we went to the bankruptcy office. It's always tough. Yeah. yeah. I've been through that. It's a, it's a difficult thing to do. So we're now going to start talking a little bit more about what happens next, but also we'll start with a few questions about what might have been done differently, just in case there were things that Aika has in her mind about what she went through that might be learning sessions for people. So when people are busy, companies generally, when they're small, I recommend that they handle their own, partly because no one trusts any intermediaries as investors, and you always want to see the founding team themselves. But when you're very busy and you're in scale-up mode, then sometimes it makes sense, especially if the amounts being raised are larger, to help other, have other people helping you go through the process, book meetings, run processes, create a, a stream of processes that help you get through to your fundraising round. So the question there for Aika was, were you using anybody through this process, any third parties to help with fundraising as you went through both the down round and then out through the what sounded like a really promising restart? I actually did not take on any help. For me, it was important to do it myself because I, I also think it's a very different ballgame if you do it as a founder, especially if you're young and in an early stage company. For the last round, I did actually work with an agency that helped with introduction right. and they did an amazing job. It was very well done. They do it in your tone of voice. Basically, they act as if you're you so that it's not an intermediary. This got us a lot of meetings. That was very, very good. But usually I did it all myself. I think investor relations also by the end of Lookabox was probably 60% of my job. Right. Yep. And actually, it's often 50% of the job 
for any CEO in any fast-growing yeah. organization because you're constantly fundraising. It's one yeah. of the maddening things about it. You can't focus on the business because you constantly have to make sure there's cash there to help grow. Yeah. So if you look back now, leaving aside the emotions that come with it, and it may be too soon, is there anything you think you could have done differently to either deal with the craziness, as you called it, of the e-scooter company or to rework or reinvigorate management for that second upcycle? When we started with the e-scooter companies, there was an energy of stress and I don't want to call it incompetence, but it was something felt off from the very beginning. And we had discussions that I don't think you should have between respectful business partners. And looking back, I should have said no. I think after one month of doing e-scooter work, basically, I regret that a lot. But it's really, as you said, leave emotions aside. It's very hard because I should have listened to my gut. And I recently learned, by the way, that your gut is actually your brain connecting dots for you, you know, right. and yeah. there's something to it. So I should, we should have pulled out there. We, all of us knew. And then greed took over, serious greed. And the amount of money that we were generating was, I should say, almost blinding. It's the, it was a drug. We were high, basically, on that sector, which kept us from thinking clearly, very, very simply. And it's also, you know, we were warned from so many sides as well, especially from my co-founder's father, who, is, is, who runs a very big logistics company. He told us, girls, ladies, don't. You don't want to play that game. You don't. Believe me, you're not cut out for it, you know. And it's, we're like, of course, you know, of course. You know, we were, I, I don't know if I told you, but the holding that we were going to create for the two entities we were so high, the name was going to be Queen's Holding. <laughs> and her dad still teases us with this to this day. It's, that's how, how far gone we were. So looking back, I would have done many things differently, but this definitely. And then, of course, then investors came and said, well, if you're continuing with the Luca Box little thing, you know, it's not interesting. If you grow this e-scooter thing, then I'm in. I remember one call with an investor very clearly. He said, I can, he, he actually really told me that if you do look a box, we're out. If you do that, we're in. And I remember feeling so strongly that I don't want to do this. I don't think it's going to be good. But I said, yeah, of course, we're going to do the scooter thing. It is interesting how often investors, like I guess many people, want to catch a wave. They see a wave yeah. and they want to catch it. They just want to jump on it. And it, the danger there, of course, when we're trying to raise capital, try and build our baby is that if if that's the only thing that the money wants to do the temptation is then to do what the money wants us to do rather than yeah. to stick with what we think we should be doing also if, if it's a first-time founder and it's it's early stage then you know you think well they're experienced investors they must know things we don't and there's a chance therefore that it's the right thing to do and totally so why not yeah so totally i mean i also i think i also told you it could have gone either way it was a gamble but it was a very it was a gamble that didn't feel right so if if I would be in a position again, I was asked that. If if I would be in a position again where I could see there's there's a lot of opportunity and it felt right, still a little risky, but right, would I do it? And then I would probably do it. You know, it's. I think that was that was the biggest mistake. I I do think the gut feel thing is important. I think Alan yeah. Greenspan, the former Fed chair, used to call it stochastic estimation. It was as exactly as you say, connecting the dots in your head. Your your gut helps you make a decision. I I I've said to my two girls who are in various forms involved in entrepreneurship that for me to make a decision, I need head and stomach to mm -hmm. be aligned. 
And mm -hmm. so some people talk about heart. For me, it's stomach. My stomach turns when things aren't right. And if they're, they're in alignment, I'm good. If they're in conflict, yeah. I struggle. Yeah, it's just, would you move on? I mean, I don't know. Would you go on if you struggle? That's And I did. Yeah, and we often have to, right? Because we have to do something yeah. and you can't stand still. What about the next phase then? So it didn't work out. Your founder leaves, your co-founder leaves, and she's yeah. the logistics lady. But the core bit of the logistics business still has promise. The core model that you developed in the second stage of the business doing last mile B2B, you were sure would work. And it was working yeah. and it started yeah. to work. Yeah. What could you have done differently? And would you have? Because you said basically that the business model worked. I mean, there's two things I can think of. One is that we always should raise money when we don't need it. And raising money when we do need it is always tough. And you have to raise it before you need it and then tell yeah. people what you're going to do. But the second thing is there's only so much you can do with a team that's exhausted. And founders will, and, and investors will see that. And in the end, we mm -hmm. invest in founders more than we invest in business plans. So if, if the founding team looks like it's worked out, then investors will see it. What could you Hopefully. have done differently then, if anything? Maybe not. That is such a human thing to not wanting to pull through and not wanting to suffer anymore. It's, I never thought it was a bad decision for her to leave. So it's, I don't think I could have done anything differently. I mean, yeah, maybe if I wouldn't have gone for the scooter thing, she wouldn't have gotten sick in the first place because it was, you know, maybe that way, yes. But it's not that it was her pulling out, but it didn't affect the rest of the team. The rest of the team was very fresh at that time, remember, because we had almost everybody let go. So there were a few core members that were very stoic about it almost, you know? I mean, yeah, things happened. So what? Now we try again, you know? That, that was the spirit, you know? And there was a lot of energy and a lot of drive in the team, especially with the new, really, really brilliant team members coming on. The founder situation was difficult because it was, I struggled. And I think the team already also knew that it wasn't easy for me to bear all of that weight myself. But I don't, I don't know if I could have done anything differently. Maybe now that you're saying it, maybe have more than two co-founders. Yeah. Or bring in someone else who filled the gap. But that's hard when money is tight and you're not sure. And it's also hard because you'd already gone through a series of rounds. So it's not like we're founders at the beginning of a company where we can allocate capital as we wish. We can allocate shares yeah. as we wish. Once you take on an outside investors, they never want to give too many shares to someone else. So it's hard to provide enough incentive to have a new real co-founder. It's yeah. easy to say re revamp the cap table, but you need very understanding investors yeah. to allow yeah. fresh, clean equity to go in. Even if it's coming in as options, which is usually the way it's done, um, yeah. for it to be a, enough options to make it a worthwhile incentive for a founder or a potential new co-founder, a lot of investors don't understand the concept of sunk costs can't yeah. really put the new possibility without thinking about the old problems before we'll resist a cap table revision. Yeah. We did actually, we did exactly what you're saying. We were trying to fill that gap and we did find somebody. He was at a very big corporate before. And I think that it, it was too much of a culture shock. He quit because he never thought it would be this hard to work in a startup. Mm. That's something a lot of so people don't did. realize. <laughs> Yeah, and as, as I said, probably rightly so, you know, maybe it's good for some people because otherwise many new companies probably wouldn't be founded. If they knew how hard it was, yes. So we talked about, I think the funder relationship is interesting. I think I've always thought taking on investors is almost like taking on partners, which in itself is almost like taking on a life partner. They're terribly important relationships. And it's only when things are tough that you know whether it's a good relationship, right? So yeah. you need support, you need understanding, you need constant communication to get through difficult bits. People don't often think enough about who the funder is when they when they take, I'm not saying you did that in this case, but it's something I'm conscious of in my past. I've taken on investors at one point in one company where I took the biggest number 
instead of taking a closer mm-hmm. look at the nature of the people behind the money mm-hmm. and not just to see if they would roll up their sleeves and help the company, but to try and judge what they'd be like when things got difficult. So that's so funder relationships are, are, are an important thing. You also mentioned something else. You talked about founders as heroes, right? Because when things are going well and the press is covering you well, they build up images of the founder of a company because everybody likes success stories and everybody likes heroes. What's your, what's, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that that's one of the one of the most challenging aspects of the of the startup scene that, that I that I criticize. It's the startup scene more than many other scenes loves their heroes. You know, just loves to celebrate them and loves to put them on a pedestal. And all we see, of course, is a, basically most of the time what we see is a front. What it does is that you feel always. It's I wouldn't say you develop an imposter syndrome, but of course, it's very hard to ever feel good enough if you, you know, hear those stories and you, you constantly compare to the big shots, the, the unicorns. Is, I can't hear that term anymore, unicorn. I also sometimes compare the startup scene to it's cult-like. It's got its own rules. And you speak to only certain people. You don't speak to people from corporate unless they're potentially customers. But mm. when you're in a startup scene, people from corporates are not really so cool. You know, cool are, you know, cool and beneficial are investors, other startup founders, you know, that have achieved something. So it's, it's a very, I don't know, I don't know if you're familiar with CrossFit or if you've ever done it. CrossFit is, CrossFit, I did CrossFit for a very long time. It's a very similar vibe. It's a very closed community with very, very certain rules and a lot of taboos and a lot of things that you don't talk about. And because for one, you don't talk about failure. Yeah, there are fuck up nights, but at fuck up nights, people talk about, yeah, I, I once hired the wrong person. Yeah, it's not me. Yeah. It was someone else. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. So it's, it's a, it's a very difficult space to be in. If you want to be real, I think, if you want to be real and authentic. Yeah. The other thing that, that I've noticed is that the media will turn on you really quick too. They like to build the heroes and then they like to tear them down. Yeah. I think I also told you in one of our talks that we had a wave of bad press that was so serious that when I basically left the house and went grocery shopping, people recognized me and knew that I completely fucked up and that I hurt all our subcontractors and I just abused them and used them for my own benefit and my own profit. And before that, the press hyped us, seriously, seriously hyped us. We were one of those heroes and we were one of those promising startups. Yeah, they turn on us very, very quickly and very harshly because of course, you know, that's interesting press. It makes good stories. It makes good stories. But it was very, very painful. But it also taught me to navigate media. And I learned a lot from that. But we have the important or the really critical topic for me is why can we not live in the startup scene being open about failure? You know, I mean, failure is the norm. You know, if you look at statistics, it's not success. But I meet so many founders where I'm like, weren't you the founder of that and that? Yeah, yeah, we closed that one. Nobody knew. Nobody talks about it. So that, that's why currently I'm the poster child for failure. And I enjoy it. Because, because you'll talk about it, it's great. Because I think, as I said, I, the statistics are very clear. It's 90%, I think, of venture-backed yes. companies fail and 99% yes. of companies overall fail. So it is the norm. Yeah. And, and we only learn by failing. I, mean, I think it was, I can't remember who said it. There was someone in the US well-known who said that failure is a stepping stone to success as long as you yeah. use it as that. It's yeah. a cliche, but it's true. 
because we yeah. learn by trying. It's very hard to learn from someone else telling us. The US though have more of a failure culture than here in Europe. And I think particularly in Switzerland, it's very, it's very frowned upon and it's very difficult here. It's, you know, you don't fail. Europe and in general, fail, I think. Yeah, yeah Europe, but, and when you fail, you don't talk about it. It's almost like, you know, it's almost like we don't talk about salaries or failures. So I think it's very important to talk about it. And that's what I meant earlier. It's, it's good that startup founders go into founding companies not worrying about everything that could happen because otherwise, you know, it's just going to be, the fear is going to be stifling. It's the hardest thing I've ever done. And I've done a lot of hard stuff, but especially the last few years, I think it, it's easily underestimated how, how tough it is and how it just takes everything out of you. But I mean, now it's now we're talking one year later and I would do it again very, very differently and very slowly. So no yeah. return to corporate life. You're not giving up and going back to corporate life. By the way, if you're ever looking for a job, best is you run a company, you fail it. You will have so many job offers. No, but I tried. I took a few test runs as CEO or other positions. It doesn't work. I'm so, a company builder by heart. And I, when I go into a company, I want to change everything. But what next then? We, we talked earlier about how the current environment's tough. It, yeah. it, it's not so much that there is a recession. It's the fact that we don't know if there's going to be a recession. One week it's on, the other week it's off. The current banking crisis was the hottest thing that everybody talked about three weeks ago. Now everybody seems to think it's all over. But what it does yeah. mean is this uncertainty means that money is staying back. I have friends who are doing rounds. You have friends who are doing rounds. We're finding and hearing that money is just saying not now because we're not yeah. sure what's going on. We can't make a judgment call on an investment right now because we don't know how much we'll need for our existing investments. What's next for ICA then in this environment, which is so difficult? I would say, especially <laughs> especially this environment right now, since about stopped, I started a, a consulting company called Rebels with a Cause, where I actually do help startup founders and I also help them raise funds. So I'm not running out of business in in that space very soon. It's tough. I have a few successful cases, but then we talk break even, super, super strong founder team, serial entrepreneurs, several exits. Yeah, that's what I'm currently doing. I'm, I'm consulting. I'm helping young companies with strategy, et cetera. And I'm enjoying it. And I, I think I also told you that it's, it's I, I wouldn't say boring, but I think it was very healthy for me, let's put it that way, to venture into consulting, you know, which is which is something I can do. There's no stress. There's no operational stress. Not everybody, somebody calling me all the time and no investors, you know, getting mad or whatever. So it, it was very smooth sailing. And I've had some business ideas on the side, you know, every now and then, but I think I wasn't ready. And some of the ideas were brilliant. And of course, the way I look at business models right now and potential market potential is a completely different game. It's if I would have looked at Lucabox with the knowledge that I have now, I wouldn't have invested. I would probably have invested in me being humble and everything. No. But I wouldn't have invested in the business model. It's supply chain is so tricky. It's so difficult. And the margins are almost non-existent. You know, and looking at business models now, I look at it very differently and I want to have I want to do something with impact. And I think I also told you earlier that we're building something again. So do you want to talk and, about that? No, I'm happy to talk about it. It's, it's a topic that has been on my mind for quite a while is mentorship, structured mentorship, because mentors are very, very fragmented today. It's very difficult to find, or it's almost impossible actually, to find good mentors easily. So we're building a mentorship platform where we have basically top shots from all kinds of areas that are happy to mentor hungry mentees. So not just entrepreneurship, but just in business life in general. 
it's not life. I wouldn't go into life coaching, life mentoring. No business life, it's, yeah. It's, yeah, it's work. growth. And so in this business, given the tight funding, are you going to try and do something that is less dependent on external funding? Will you try and bootstrap as far as you can, or are you still going out and trying to find investment for it? What do you think? <laughs> if, if it was me, I would bootstrap as long as I could right now. Yeah. And then later on, once things have loosened up, with a bit of track record, go and talk to people. I would also, this is a recommendation, if it's something I would recommend anyway, start talking to funders and saying, listen, I'm not asking for money. I'm just going to let you know what I'm doing. And I look forward to coming back to you in six months' time, nine months' time, and show you what I've done. Because it starts a relationship. It also means that you tell them what you're going to do. And if six or nine months' time, if you can go back to them and see, see, I did it, you start to gain credibility again. So have the conversations, but say, I don't need your money right now. There's a very strong resistance <laughs> To talking to within, any outside funders. With, yeah, <laughs> within me to talk to investors about my ventures. I, I, want, I want to bootstrap as long as possible, ideally not having to raise funds at all. Sure. That is obviously the nicest way to do it. I think one yeah. of the things that, that people don't realize is that, and you've talked about it here, obviously, investors come with a voice and sometimes yeah. a very loud voice. So as I said, choose very, very carefully. Choose your money carefully. Not all money is smart. You know how difficult it is to choose money Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why we have a lot. We need lots of conversations so that we end up with those choices. But very often, yeah, there's yeah. only one source, and that's what you have to do. And you have to think about how to manage that relationship. Yeah. It's tough. Yeah. No, I'm not very keen on having those conversations. <laughs> I totally understand. Ika, it's been a really, really lovely conversation. Thank you for being so open with us about it. Is there anything you'd like to leave us with before we go to our last questions, Ika? About entrepreneurship in general, I think entrepreneurship is probably next to being a parent, which I'm not, but I could imagine the most satisfying thing you can do. It's so much fun to build businesses. Yeah, if everybody, I think really everybody should try it because <laughs> if you fail, you know, either you take, you probably get much better job than you have right now, or you try again. But I have to say, I agree. I, I would encourage yeah. kids to, to start companies sooner rather than later because A, you learn by doing. And B, yeah. life is just much more interesting. It's not as, yes, there are risks involved and yes, it's hard work. Yeah. But it's actually these days, given how quickly companies hire and fire, it's no more risky in a job sense or a career sense than taking right. a large job with an investment bank. The issue, in fact, is maybe you learn things in trying to do things yourself that you wouldn't learn in a corporation. And therefore, that's valuable to companies who are now mm -hmm. being disrupted. Mm -hmm. We're in a period of very, very high rates of change as we mm -hmm. were at the beginning of the 19th, 20th century. It really is that sort of period we're in and companies therefore need to understand how to adapt. What do we have as questions? Okay, so are you able to, or do you wish to, totally fine if you don't, but do you wish to talk about the valuation journey of Luca Box as it went through? Because you said there was a down round, but you didn't talk yeah. to us what the valuations were. If you're happy to talk about them, please do. If you're not, that's fine. And the second question, what was the degree of involvement of employees and the cap table? either as investor shareholders or as receivers of options? Okay. To question number one, the valuation, I, I'd rather not give exact numbers, but I can tell you how much it grew. So we started with a pretty high valuation when we started out. With, we were, yeah, maybe that wasn't the luckiest thing looking back, but we started with a rather high valuation, which doubled to the next round and then fell to a quarter of the round before that. and then actually increased by a multiple of eight in the next round that's helpful actually that at least draws us the chart yes yeah, yeah. so the down round was end up ended up being half the original price and then you went up yes. again from there yeah very good yes. okay thank you for that and then the question about employees how do they have skin in the game do they have 
or did they have upside at least? Definitely, that was a must for us. Everybody was part of the stock option plan. And in terms of investment, so the, the, you were two founders, the yeah. two of you that invested. Did you put in cash or was it just time? Did any other employees put in cash? We did initially when we founded the company, my dear myself, 50-50, yeah. Okay, so that was just the two founders. Very good. Thank you for that. Now, people want to know what job offers you've been getting since you shut Looperbox down. So it's basically taking on CEO roles within corporations for their yes. subsidiaries. Yeah, it was. It was not also for SMEs, but it was. I got five CEO job offers. Okay, cool. Were they all logistics or were they wide range? No, no one was logistics. The other was anything. Interesting. Last one. You kind of half answered it in something you commented earlier, but let's try it again. How do you think new investors in your next venture, assuming you one day decide to go to outside investors, how do you think that they will review your history in the entrepreneurship space? I believe my value has increased significantly through the experience and the learnings that I had at Lucabox. And I also know from the investor side, being a serial entrepreneur, and it makes so much sense, I know so much more. So it's probably going to be a more attractive probably for investors. Okay, that's a good answer. And I, I would totally agree. I think there was a, a wonderful statistic. There's a magazine in the United States called Inc. Magazine, which is a magazine for founders, by founders and by writers. And it does a survey every year of the Inc. 500. So they interview the CEOs of the 500 fastest growing corporations in America, some private, some public. Obviously, it's not all the 500, but they, they gather 500 companies. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting statistics is that these CEOs of fast growing successful companies, well, 60% of them are on their third company or more because it takes that long to learn processes mm -hmm. enough to make them work well. Aika, yeah. thank you so much. It's been lovely to have you with thank us. Thank you, Ian. And for those, everybody else watching, this has been the Founder Series. We've been with Aika Festina today talking about her adventures with Lucabox. Don't despair. Having gone through the ups and downs of one startup, she's already working on her next one. And I look forward to interviewing her again when we know a little bit more about what happens next. May I say one more thing, Ian? One Please more do. Thing. For the mentorship platform, we're opening applications very soon. But most of the viewers are probably very established professionals. So if you're interested in giving back to interested mentees, hit me up on LinkedIn, please. We're opening application. Great. So look for Iker on LinkedIn and connect that way. Yeah, that would be great. All right. Thanks, Ian. Thanks. Thanks. My pleasure. Thank you very much, everybody. And we'll be back with another episode of the Founder Series sometime soon. Bye for now. Mm -hmm.